The Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Please join me in prayer. Well, Father in heaven, we come before you this morning with gratefulness in our hearts. For today is another, another day that you have made, and so we rejoice and are glad in it. We thank you, Lord, for the display of your glory through creation. We're also grateful, Lord, for the, for the display of your glory through the gift of your self-revelation, your word. We thank you, Father, where you tell us about yourself, about your creation, about this world, and our very lives. So we're eager to hear from you today, Father. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes to see your glory through your word, through these pages. Father, give us ears to hear words of truth and light in the midst of a hard and painful world. Father, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might cherish your word, not being hearers only, but being doers of your word. I pray, Father, that you would let us leave here today changed. We don't desire more information primarily, Lord, but transformation. So transform us even as we sit here considering how your word addresses us today. We pray this in, our, in the mighty and magnificent name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Please follow along as I read verses 13 through 17. And what a privilege it is to do what we're about to do, to read and hear from the authoritative and holy word of God. Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. May God richly bless the preaching of his word. Of a very simple outline this morning, first section is a shocking invitation, the second section is a scandalous dinner party, and then we'll conclude with a, a few points of application toward the end. So a shocking invitation. It seems that every time that we come to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, he is surrounded by crowds of people. He starts off all alone in the wilderness, but then very quickly he is constantly surrounded by people. He is calling people. People are coming to him. People are crowding around him. And here it is again. While he is walking beside the sea in Galilee, doing what he's always doing, he is teaching. Notice this is the fifth time in just a few verses that he is teaching the people. And as he's doing so, crowds are coming around. People are flocking to him. They want to hear what he has to hear. And here, Jesus is going to call another disciple, which is... It's very similar, if you, if you think back to chapter 1, verse 16, where Jesus is passing along the Sea of Galilee, and he comes to these men, Simon and Andrew, and then he comes to James and John, and those are the first four official disciples at this point. 
There are a number of people that are following Jesus in, a, in, a, in one sense, in a general sense. But these four men, these few, are the ones who are following Jesus as his disciples. And this morning, we, went, we witnessed Jesus calling another one. So Jesus is here in Capernaum, and the, the crowds are gathering to him. And as he teaches, perhaps at, just after he finished teaching, he continues along, and he comes to this man. And he sees him across the way, a man named Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And this is the same person, if you read the parallel accounts in, in the Gospel of Matthew or in the Gospel of Luke, this is the same man that Matthew calls by the name Matthew. It's the same man. A number of people have multiple names throughout the Bible. You think of Simon, who's called Peter, who's called Cephas. Or you think of Saul, who's later called Paul. So it's not uncommon to have multiple names. But this man, Levi, is the same one as Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew 28 chapters of our scriptures. So Levi, Matthew, same person. He was a tax collector. He was sitting in his tax booth. And we're, we're all somewhat familiar with the fact that, that tax collectors were not very popular in these days. But we need to feel just how unpopular they were, just why it was that they were despised in order to, to appreciate the impact of this particular invitation. There were three kinds of taxes for the Jews under the Roman Empire. There was a land tax. This was a, a tax on the landowners, which was basically 10% of their harvest. So it was a direct tax every year. They would get collected and eventually get shipped off to Rome. Second, there was a poll tax. This was a, a head tax, a, like a census tax. And so this was basically a, the equivalent of a day's wage per person, so a, a denarius. And then there was a third type of tax. A customs tax. Now this tax was it, it was on goods. It was set up along trade routes and, and, and entry points in and around different towns. It was kind of like a toll. So you think about driving on the highway 130 and you're cruising along at 85 miles per hour or maybe 86 or 87, whatever it is that you do on that highway and, and you're enjoying the drive and then a few weeks later you get a bill in the mail for like a bazillion dollars and that's a toll. Right? We're all familiar with the concept of tolls. We don't like them either. Well, that was kind of like this type of tax. It was a customs type of tax, a toll kind of tax. Maybe it was like duty as you go in and out of countries, as you have to pay for, for goods there. But the tax collectors took advantage of these taxes. So Capernaum was a border town in, the, in, in Galilee, with the region of Herod Philip to the north and the Decapolis to the east. And so as people traveled in and out of these regions, they would have to go buy these toll booths, and they would have to declare their goods, and they would have to pay a tax on them. So Levi was one of these customs tax collectors. And since it was in Capernaum, it was, it was mainly fishermen who were going in and out, because fish, fish would have been the primary thing that was being exported out of Galilee. So fish were a, were a common thing to be taxed. The reason that Rome used tax collectors Rather than using their own officials, they use these tax collectors. The reason why is because a number of uh, years prior to this, they had gotten out of the tax collecting business. They realized that it wasn't worth their time to collect it themselves. And so rather, they, uh, what they did was they farmed it out. They outsourced the job of tax collecting. And so they would hire these people. You would have an, an individual who would have to be very wealthy, or more likely a group of individuals who would come together. They would, they would pool their money. 
and they would bid on the opportunity, they would bid for the right to collect taxes on behalf of Rome. And so these in different individuals, they would bid, and whoever had the highest bid, Rome would grant the opportunity to collect taxes on their behalf. So Levi was, was probably one of these collections of, of tax collectors, a, a, a collection agency, if you will. And what we'll see is, is all these tax collectors in his house, this was probably the group of tax collectors that he worked with. They were the ones that he, that he went in with to buy groups of taxes to, to collect on. And if you know the story of Zacchaeus, you remember Zacchaeus was also a tax collector, but Zacchaeus was called the chief tax collector. So he was likely another, a part of another similar group of, of tax collectors, and he was the chief one. So similar idea here. So what would happen is you'd have this guy, Levi, and he would get together with this group of tax collectors, and they would bid, saying our figures, they would, they would go to this auction, and they would bid 500000 600000 700000 do I hear 800000 And somebody would say a million dollars, and they would say, sold, you have the rights to collect taxes in this region on our behalf. And so they would delegate that authority to them. And so you can imagine what would happen is these, this chief tax collector, like Zacchaeus, or whoever the chief was for Levi's tribe, he would say, okay, we just paid, they would, and they would have to pay the money up front. So there's no risk for them. So they would pay the money up front, and they'd say, look, we just, we just shelled out a million bucks to pay, to pay for the right to collect taxes on behalf of Rome. So what we need to do is we need to make that worth our while. So we'll collect not one million dollars, we'll collect two million dollars worth of taxes this year. And so what he would do is he would delegate, so if he had 10 different tax collectors with, with 10 different booths, he would say each person is responsible for collecting $200,000 each, right? But each tax collector, he wasn't satisfied with that because he wanted to sweeten the pot a little bit more for him. So instead of collecting $200,000, he says, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to collect $250,000. So he would sweeten the pot a little bit more. So every time somebody would come through, he would, he would increase the amount of taxes to make it worth his while. So these tax collectors, they did so by extortion, by cheating, by fraud. There, there's virtually no enforcement of the rules. And so they could pretty much get away with however much money they wanted to charge because nobody was going to call them out on it. The people didn't really know the regulations anyway. So the tax collectors were despised. They were despised because nobody liked paying taxes in the first place, which is probably an experience we're familiar with Thing. In addition to that, they were despised because the tax collectors had to interact often, constantly with the Gentiles, which is something that, that good Jews would never have anything to do with. In addition to that, they were despised because they weren't just collecting taxes on behalf of Jerusalem. They weren't collecting taxes merely on behalf of the Jews. They were collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire. This was an enemy. This was an invading territory. So they were collecting taxes for an invading empire, which has subjected their people. So these people were very despised. And more than that, they had the power to determine what things were worth. So as, as people would come by their tax booth, they would say, okay, that's $10,000 worth of fish. And the, and the fishermen would say, but I, I have three fish. And the guy said, yeah, that's $10,000. And the guy was incredulous, but he had no choice but to pay it. And nobody knew what the regulations were, so it was always a sliding scale based on the mood of that tax collector on that day. So it was, a, it was a system of injustice. It was systemic injustice, classic 
A system that made it easy to take advantage of the oppressed. And if you felt like you were cheated, certainly you could call up the higher authorities. But it was a, it was a long and confusing process, and it wasn't likely that you're going to win anyway. And so you just, you just gave in. You just knew that, okay, whatever he says, I have to pay it. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to, I don't want to have to pay even a higher fine for hassling the tax collector. So injustice was very common, and the tax collectors were virtually immune to any real accountability. The tax collectors were so despised, in fact, that in the Mishnah, which is a, a Jewish collection of law and tradition, they would often group three kinds of people together. They would collect thieves, robbers, and tax collectors. This is how they viewed them. Tax collectors couldn't be judges. They couldn't be relied upon as witnesses in a court of law. They were no good. They weren't allowed to enter the synagogue. If a tax collector entered your home, the way that you would purify your home, it would be declared unclean, and you would have to call in the priest to purify it. So given all of that, the reputation of tax collectors, the contempt with which they were held, the fact that almost all of them were cheats, Verse 14 is simply shocking. Remember, this isn't like you have someone who is, who is following Jesus and just begging and pleading, please take me in. Would you allow me to listen to you? Would you allow me to learn from you? Would you allow me to be counted among your disciples? No, Jesus, rather, is walking by. He sees Levi sitting at his booth, collecting from the people. He makes eye contact and he calls to him, you. Follow me. He calls him out. He picks him. Jesus is building his team of disciples. He's building his small group. He's just got four so far. And as he's looking around for who would make an ideal disciple, he looks at this tax collector and he invites him to follow him. This, friends, is shocking. Now, it could be that, that Levi and Jesus knew each other, given how much time Jesus spent in Capernaum. It's even possible, it's probable, in fact, that, Jesus, that, uh, that Levi knew Simon and Andrew, James and John, because, remember, they were fishermen, so they likely had to deal with Levi on a number of occasions. What we know with absolute certainty, though, is that in that moment, this tax collector, this man who is despised, he got up from his table, he heard the invitation, and he began following Jesus right there on the spot. He left it all to follow Jesus. And really, it's hard to know which is more shocking, the, the fact that Levi got up and followed him, or the fact that Jesus called him. Think about that. This man was not an ideal candidate. He wasn't a strong, mature man. He wasn't a religious follower. A lot for Jesus to work with, but rather he was despised among the community. As he's trying to grow, as Jesus is building his team of disciples, people who will be fisher of other men, he says, that guy, he's going to fish for other men. This is shocking. And you see, Jesus, uh, Levi doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't respond. He's a busy man. He's an important man. But he doesn't respond with Jesus, man, I'm, I am busy. April 15th is coming right around the corner, and I've got a lot of collecting to do. I'm behind my quota, and I need to get collecting. But send me, come on back later, or send me an email, and I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you at some point. He doesn't say 
anything like that. He didn't think to himself. You know, this guy, Jesus, is very interesting. But he's also a little crazy. And I, don't, I don't know exactly what's going on here. But I'm too important. I have too much reputation to risk to just, to just get up and follow this guy. No, Levi didn't do any of that. Instead, he, he gets up and he follows Jesus. Levi didn't know at this point what you and I know about Jesus. Levi did not know that, that Jesus would die for his sins. Levi didn't know that, that Jesus was God in the flesh. But he did know enough to follow him. He knew enough to get up and to leave his table. He could recognize Jesus' power and authority. Something in him resonated with the teaching that Jesus gave. He must have believed enough in this man to say, to take that first step. You see, there, there's two different types of following that we see. We see the type of following that Simon and Andrew do, where they say, I believe in this man. We see people that say, I have seen Jesus. I have trusted in him. I have given up everything to follow him. I believe that he is the son of God. I believe he's died for my sins. I want to be baptized in his name, and I want to be uh, joined publicly to his church. That is a follower of Jesus. But there's another type of following Jesus, and and that's what I think we see here. Someone who says, you know, I'm not sure, but I'm, but I'm curious. I want to read more. And I want to learn more. And I want to talk to some other Christians. And I want to hear what the Bible has to say. And I want to be around this Jesus. Now, everyone in the second category, the prayer is that they get to that first group to believe. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. But it's okay for a time. Many of you had to start out in the second category. And it took some time for you to simmer in the word and, and to hear the teaching of Jesus and to walk with him. Or to start out somewhere in the middle. I, I think that's what Levi did. I want to be around this Jesus. I'm not sure, but man, there's something about him. And I want to just walk with him. And I want to learn more about him. And maybe that's where some of you were at this morning. And that's okay, but, but keep reading and, and keep leaning in and keep listening. So it's amazing what we see Levi do here. But I think it's even more shocking what we see Jesus do. Jesus calling this tax collector. This is like, who is the most despised people that you can think of in the world today? Who are the most despised people that, that you can't imagine Jesus calling as a disciple? You think maybe of the, the director of, of Planned Parenthood. You think of, of, of the wealth that they've accumulated and, and you know how they've gotten their money. You know where they live. You know how they've gotten rich. And yet Jesus says to them, you follow me. This is Jesus coming up to the guy in town who owns multiple stores, who sells very ungodly types of products. Everyone knows how this man makes his money, and Jesus says, you follow me. Yes. Or it's Jesus coming up to the businessman who's made his riches working and went through the loopholes, taking advantage of others' ignorance, taking advantage of people, of the weak. And Jesus comes up to that man, and he invites that person and says, you follow me. And he does. Friends, the story gets even better. Or worse, depending on your heart. Look at verse 15. We'll call this section the scandalous dinner party. 
you look at this section and you think about who is there. Here's Jesus with his disciples, these, these five men now. So you have Simon and Andrew, James and John, and now this tax collector, this despised Levi. And you know, I bet, I bet these guys, I bet Andrew and Simon and, and James and John, you think they're freaking out just a little bit right about now? Here they are in this room, and, and they're thinking to each other, this isn't what I bargained for, you know? I mean, Jesus, he's, the teaching and the miracles and all that stuff, amazing. And the authority, the, the healings, excellent. And the kingdom. But now, what, what is going on now? We're doing some weird stuff, and we're going to some places that we didn't think we'd go with, with Jesus, the Son of God. And they're here now. They're going into Levi's house. And it's not just that they're in this man's house. They're in the house of a tax collector. But all of his friends are there. All of his tax collector friends. Other run-of-the-mill sinners. And they're surrounded by them. Imagine for a moment they're, they're at the table and they're reclining. They're, they're sitting on a table and they're reclining and, and eating a meal together, which is an intimate setting. And as you go around the room, who do you see? See a, a young man in the drug trade. There's a woman there, and everybody knows her reputation. It's not good. There's a man there who loves to debate Christians and tries to humiliate them. Oh, and that woman there, she, she's a political activist that loves to to sue churches and to shut them down for teaching things that, that challenge social norms of the day. And then there's the rich doctor who's always taking advantage of people and taking lavish vacations. And he's got a, a new car every six months. And there's a married couple who are absolutely at each other's throats. They're destroying their family. And there's a middle-aged woman who, you know, she, she buys all those trashy magazines at the checkout aisle. She stays up on all the sleazy gossip shows on TV. There's a gang member over here. There's an ex-con over here. And that guy, that guy's been divorced three times. And that woman, she is so selfish. She just, she sits there and talks about herself incessantly. And nobody wants to be around her at all. That's this dinner party. That's who's there. Is it any wonder then that the scribes of the Pharisees, look at verse 16, it's not the scribes and the Pharisees, it's the scribes of the Pharisees. These are the uber Pharisees. These are, these are the, you've got the scribes, you've got the Pharisees, and then these are the scribes of the Pharisees. These are the best of the best of the bunch of the Pharisees. And they are absolutely scandalized as they look at, and these people that Jesus is having dinner with, these people that, that Jesus is, is reclining next to, these people that Jesus is engaging in conversation, they are scandalized. He's sitting there with sinners and outcasts. And most of us are familiar with the story, so we can think, oh, oh those Pharisees, you know, the, they're the self-righteous ones. Of course they're scandalized. But think about it for a moment. What? What would we have been like? What, what would have been going through your mind had you been standing there? Imagine you're, 
Imagine you're driving home this evening, and you're driving through the neighborhood, and and you have you pull down the street where where that house is. You know the house that has too many cars parked out front all the time, right? It's the it's the party house. You know which one I'm talking about. It's the house where there, there's always parties going on, and there's and there's drugs and drinking and music that blares through the windows at all hours of the night. That that house that all the neighbors talk about. And as you're driving by that house, one of your kids says, Dad, why don't we stop and, and go say hi to those neighbors? Because he's been to church, you know, the, the pastor's been talking to us about getting to know our neighbors. So your son's choosing now to apply that to, to these neighbors. And so you have a hard time arguing with that, so you pull over and you, you walk up to the door begrudgingly. Your son's watching you, he's cheering you on. And you knock. And you kind of hope it that nobody is there or that, or that they're still asleep and, and they haven't woken up yet because it's, you know, uh, it, it's not middle of the night. But instead, the door opens and there's Jesus. Jesus is standing there at the party house. What goes through your mind immediately? Really? You shouldn't be here, Jesus. Not, not this house. Do you know what house this is? Do you know the kind of people that live here, that hang out here? Jesus, you know, we're about to have a community group just a few houses down. You'd like it better over there. We have snacks. There's nice people. But not here. At the party house? Now, to be clear, Jesus is not engaged in sin. He's not there imbibing in the sinful activities that are going on. He's not condoning sin. But Jesus is definitely eating with sinners. Known sinners. Is there any part of you that's just saying, Jesus, you've got to get out of there. This is scandalous. Because it is scandalous. I mean, maybe you can make sense of it if Jesus was there. But what if you saw your small group leader there? What if you're driving by that house that has a reputation and you see Pastor John's car parked out front? You're going to pull him aside and say, John, I don't know about this. People want to talk. Let me ask you a different question. What was Jesus' attitude toward tax collectors and sinners? It wasn't blanket acceptance, but it was an open invitation. Let's say that again. Jesus' attitude toward the tax collectors and sinners was not blanket acceptance. But it was an open invitation. Remember, his entire preaching ministry was summarized in chapter 1, verse 15, where Jesus said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was his bread and butter message. Repent and believe in the gospel. So it's safe to assume that the people who heard him, the people who knew of Jesus, knew that that was his, past, his message. After all, he had just been teaching the crowds along the Sea of Galilee before he meets Levi, before he goes into his house. So he probably just heard it. So it's not likely that these people were confused that repentance was part of the message. Jesus wasn't there preaching, I accept you just as you are and you never have to change. It's not what he said. Clearly his message was one of repentance. So it wasn't just blanket acceptance, but the invitation was wide open. And that was scandalous enough. Now, 
If I were to ask you, not, I don't think any of us today would want to restrict the call of the gospel at all, right? If I, if I took a poll in this room and I said, write down on a piece of paper the kinds of people that you don't want coming to our church, I don't think that many people would write down anything, really. I don't think that the types of people actually come into our minds. But are there ways that we actually do functionally restrict the call of the gospel? So it's easy to talk about ministering to the poor, but what if we had lots and lots of really poor people in the church? We talk about the glory of diversity, and diversity is glorious. But do we really want to do the hard work of welcoming people of different backgrounds and ethnicities who eat different types of food and who prefer different types of music? We can talk about how we want everyone to come to Christ, but deep down, do we, do we really mean we want educated, clean-cut, basically culturally conservative people to come to the church? Is that who we're hoping walks through our doors? We want to make disciples, brothers and sisters. But that means that somebody's got to be willing to disciple the bipolar woman. Or to welcome the awkward couple into your community group and to engage them. You know that couple that, that, that just a little bit off and they don't really understand social dynamics very well? Who will go out of your way in, in the lobby to engage that person who is really emotionally needy? You know that person is going to talk your ear off, and it's not going to be a lot of fun. Let me ask you a different question. What, what would make you rejoice more as you come to church next week, as you walk into worship, if you see five new Christian families from other churches, all mature and, and strong, and there's nothing wrong, you know, there's good reasons why people would leave one church for another. But which would excite you more? There's five new mature Christian families. Or if you saw coming in here for the first time, kind of kind of sneaking in the back, a homosexual couple. Or a blind man. A God-looking teenager. Someone that's on the other side of the political aisle from you. Which scenario gets you more excited? Now, I like, I, like to, I like things to be in order. People mock me incessantly about it. When we moved into our church offices last year, uh, we, were, we weren't there a day, and I was, the guys had bought, brought all their boxes in, but I wasn't satisfied with boxes being in. I started unloading them onto the shelves, not just in any order, but I, I put them in a very specific order so I know where every single book is on my shelf. My brother used to mock me, because when, uh, when we were young, I would know when he'd been in my room. I'd know that he was playing with my Star Wars action figures. And he would say, how did you know? And I'd say, well, of course I'm not going to have Bubba Fett hanging out over here with Han Solo. <laughs> things need to be in order. And I like things to be in order in the church. I like, I like order. I like systems that work. I don't enjoy chaos or confusion. But the truth is that gospel ministry messy. We make no apologies in the church for a commitment to doctrinal precision 
or for having needy sermons or for taking discipleship very seriously. We don't make apologies for having high moral standards or, or pursuing excellence in everything we do. We do those things. We believe they please God. But if we love like Jesus loves, we will also welcome messy people. People who don't know how you're supposed to act in church. They don't fit into our basic social molds. Brothers and sisters, we need to cast the nets in our hearts very wide. Who needs Jesus? Business people need to follow Jesus. Rich people need to follow Jesus. Poor people need to follow Jesus. Dirty people need to follow Jesus. Criminals need to follow Jesus. Republicans need to follow Jesus. Democrats need to follow Jesus. Fishermen, tax collectors, and sinners all need to follow Jesus. Jesus was not giving blanket acceptance, but he did give a wide open invitation. Likewise, Jesus wasn't tolerant towards sin, but he was friendly towards sinners. Luke chapter 5, verse 32, the parallel section in the Gospel of Luke to what we have here in Mark. Jesus finishes by saying, I have not come here to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So there again, Jesus was not just hanging out. Oftentimes we say that, we, that Jesus hung out with sinners. But Jesus wasn't just hanging out in a, in, a, in a casual kind of aimless hanging out. That's not what we see him doing here. It wasn't that he was tolerant of sin. Jesus was not offering cheap grace. But Jesus was exceedingly gracious. Jesus was not willing to compromise with sinners. But he was eager to share a meal with them. How about you? Let me close by, by giving you just a few points of application that I think are going to push us in the right direction. Number one, we need less fear of contamination and more confidence in the power of Christ to cleanse. Now, obviously, I'm not encouraging those, if you, if you have a drinking problem, if you're a recovering alcoholic, I'm not encouraging you to go into the bars to, to reach out to, to drunks. Okay, that'd be unwise. If you have a drug habit, I'm certainly not encouraging that. I'm not, I'm not encouraging people that, uh, you, as you work alongside people that, that watch all kinds of TV shows and movies, I'm not saying that you should go and consume all kinds of ungodly media in order to better relate to others. There, there's, there's wisdom in why we live the way that we do. But we must not think of relationships with sinners primarily as dangers. We must realize that there are opportunities, opportunities to love, opportunities to learn, opportunities to lead others to Christ. Do you know that verse in, in 1 John, do you believe it, that says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world? Or do we just fear contamination so much that we don't have confidence that Christ can change this person? After all, he changed you. Secondly, we must speak the truth about sin. We do. But we do not have to speak it constantly wherever sin is present. 
And this is tricky. My, my point here, though, is that God does not call you to be a nag. Do you know that person who has the spiritual, who has the spiritual gift of nagging? Who believes that the best way for them to lead others to Christ is by nagging them anytime they hear them use language that they don't agree with. Anytime that they tell me about a movie they saw that I wouldn't see, I make sure to find their, I find a way to, to let them know that, that that movie, I would not watch that. It was inappropriate. They shouldn't watch it either. That's how I'm going to lead others to Christ. I feel like God has called me to be a conscience for other people who apparently don't have one. You ever felt like that? That's my gift. Well, no, God has not called you to that. He hasn't called you to the, to the uh, task of spiritual nagging. But if we don't tell them how wrong it is, how will they know? Maybe they might even think that I approve of it. Yeah, maybe, maybe there are some situations that you do need to speak up. But it's not every time, in every situation... It's not every single time that you need to give a running run commentary. Like you, you have dinner with, with some, you know, some couple that are not Christians and, and they talk about things. At the end of the night, you let, let everything go. But before you leave, you want to make sure they know where you stand. So you say, hey, it was a great time to hang out with you. But here's four things I wanted to tell you that I disagreed with that y'all said tonight. That's awkward. Not very winsome. Not very gracious. Listen, people knew where Jesus stood. People likely know where you stand. And if they don't, then invite them into a dialogue at some point. People should know what you think about Jesus, the Son of God, and faith and repentance. Jesus wasn't hiding anything. He wasn't soft-selling the message. But neither did he turn every single encounter into a, into a bare-knuckle confrontation where he was beating people over the heads with their sin. Third, and perhaps most important, we need to know that this church is already filled to the brim with tax collectors and sinners. They're all around you. They're sitting on your own, right in front of you. There's one preaching to you today. People with all sorts of messed up stuff in their life. Some of it is really hidden. And you look good, but, but you're not that good. All sorts of stuff that is going on in your private life, in your marriage. We've been saved, many of us, from, from drinking or from drugs or from all kinds of ungodly behavior. Some of it is simply the run-of-the-mill pride and, and self-righteousness and, and arrogance. But brothers and sisters, we are all sinners and tax collectors here. So what's a few more? Extend our arms and say, welcome. We're all needy here. The ground is level at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. And finally, we must remember that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Think about how ridiculous it would be for a, for a doctor who didn't treat patients. You think about a, a clinic that just opened up down the street, and you walk in, and, and the doctor, everything's very nice, and they've got big screen TVs and nice snacks, and you walk in, and the doctor says, I'm sorry, we don't take patients here. You say, oh, but, it, but this is a nice doctor facility. There's seven doctors. He says, yeah, it's, it's really great. 
we have, we're totally free in our schedules and, and we don't have to mess with all the things that normal doctors do. That we don't take patients here. You say, I'm not sick. Oh, well then you're welcome. Come on in. It'd be ridiculous. Well, Jesus is not saying here that there are some who are truly righteous that don't actually need God. He's, he means rather, listen, I'm going to be of no help to the man or woman who is self-assured, who, who already feels so confident in their righteousness that they don't have any sense of need for me. Now listen, the only thing that qualifies us to be followers of Jesus Christ is that we are sinners in need of a Savior. That we recognize that and Jesus says, welcome, come, you follow me. I can work with that. The people that Jesus came for are those who know that they're messed up and have nowhere else to go for help. Jesus did not come to get a noble army of well-put-together, well-adjusted people. In fact, if you read the Gospels, those are usually the people that despise Jesus. The scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders, the elites. But who is it that keeps flocking to him? Lepers. Paralytics. The weak the wounded, the sick, sinners. The scribes wanted to enlighten, the Pharisees wanted to legislate, but Jesus came to redeem. So what's our mission? It's not simply to grow in information, but it's to seek spiritual transformation. It's to redeem, to save. And so, brothers and sisters, would you pray for me? That more sinners, more tax collectors would hear this gospel. That the Lord would use you and I. And would you pray that when they come, that they would find a, a warm welcome from, from other tax collectors and sinners. That they would feel our love and that as we love them, we would also have the grace to comfort and to confront. And that when they're confronted, the Spirit would work to convict and to change and that as they're convicted, that we would have the joy of leading them to the cross. Because that cross belongs to a man who is a friend of sinners. I want to invite the worship team to come back on the stage. So we can sing one last song together this morning. As they do so, I want you to think about your own conversion. This, this conversion of Levi serves as a reminder of our own conversion story, doesn't it? That moment that Jesus called you. As much as Levi needed the redeeming work of the Lord in his life, so do you and I, even today. We need the power of the gospel as much today as we did on that first day. No less when we are first saved as when we're trying to win the right, win the race. Having followed Jesus for many years, do you feel that need, brothers and sisters, this morning? Because we all have it. Do you feel your need? So let us sing to our Savior, friends. Let us stand and sing to the one who knows us thoroughly and loves us redemptively. Let's stand and sing to him.